0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as a kid, I loved growing up in the neighborhood where I grew up. We had great times. I mean great times because we had a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and we played all kinds of sports, all kinds of games. We played basketball and kickball. We played hide-and-seek and and kick the can. We even played yarts or yard darts. you familiar with this game? Yeah, I have scars on my body from where the darts hit me. I'm not kidding you. I think this... How many of you know have ever played jarts? Yeah, some of you, great. You lived dangerously, didn't you? Yeah, this is like darts, only you throw them in your yard and you throw them way up in the air. It was a lot of fun. We had a great time. I think this game is probably outlawed in probably 40 of the 50 states or more. But it's a lot of fun. We had all those games we did. But the most fun for me, whatever season it was, didn't matter, I loved playing tackle football in our neighborhood. Because it was so much fun. And the guys included the younger guys in the game, and we had a great time. We would get together with a neighboring neighborhood, and those kids, we'd all meet at the elementary school. They had a huge field out front. And you know how that works. A couple of the older guys are named captains, and they start picking. You know, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you. And I was, just, as a little guy, I was always hoping that there was enough space that I could get picked. Because they would get to 11, and if you, if, there, you know, if you didn't get picked, you didn't get to play. You just had to stand on the sideline. Now, occasionally somebody would have to leave early, and they'd say, okay, you can. But normally the game was almost over by then. And I, the action was in playing. And if you got picked, you were on the team. And if you were on the team, you got to play. Even if you were the last person picked, you were on the team, and you got to play. Today we're going to look at Jesus picking his team, at least starting to. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn to it, it's Matthew, the fourth chapter. We're going to start with verse 18 and following. Uh, Turn there on your your smartphone or tablet or Bible, whichever you're you're working with, and just hold that for a second, because I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about what can happen when the Bible has authority and everything in the church is built and revolves around that authority. And it's applied to accomplishing the mission that the church gives us. Think about what could happen if all of that is working in the same direction. Now you know the mission of the church is simply to make disciples of all nations. And if that's at the center Things can happen. But if it's not at the center, if it's in the sideline, you know, and it's just just, just kind of on the, on the edges, or maybe it's, it's, it's an afterthought, it's not even part of the agenda, then the mission doesn't happen. We're here as a church here at 990 Starshoot to reach people who are not yet part of the family of God. We are what we call ourselves a Great Commission Church. And we want to live up to that. And if you're on the team of a great commissioned church, guess what? You get to participate, you get to play. If I were to ask you the question, how do you make disciples? These are the players. How do you make them? How do you get them? How how are they? There would be a lot of different kinds of answers, I'm sure, and maybe even a few blank stares of people who have no idea. And that's okay too. This is the command, though, that is at the center of the kingdom of God. Make disciples of all nations. And if that's the case, then we need to know what that means. What is a disciple? You see, disciple-making should be at the center of everything that we do as a church. And we should know how to do it. So the question I want to start with, if you don't mind, you know, disciple-making 101 is what is a disciple? When you look at the New Testament, the the term disciple is mentioned 269 times. That's quite a few times for one word. And one of the things about Scripture is that if a word is used a number of times, typically it's an indication that it's important. That term is important. And don't lose sight of that. To give context to this, or maybe contrast this, the word Christian is only used three times. The, the word disciple is mentioned over and over again, and what, what is a disciple is probably simply defined as a student or a follower of a specific teacher. And when the New Testament talks about disciples, it talks about disciples in, different, in a different context. There are basically three kind of groupings or categories, if you will, of people that make up this term disciples. Now the first level, kind of the easiest level, or the the most simplest level, is what we would call the casual listener. These are people who are in the crowds. They're following Jesus. They're referred to as disciples as they talk about the crowd. And they're just listening to what Jesus is saying in a casual manner. The second group they take a little a step deeper and you will see these people who are referred to as disciples more along the lines of the convinced listener. The convinced listener. These are people who, who do have a certain amount of buy-in here. They say, I believe that this guy, Jesus, and what he is saying. I believe and I am convinced that he is who he says he is. That's the convinced listener. And then the third group you take another step deeper and they are what we would probably refer to as the committed lifelong learner and follower. The committed lifelong learner and follower. What is interesting is that in the New Testament, when we see all of these three different references to disciples, typically they're all there in a group and the reference is given to them as disciples. The greatest number of the people who are called disciples in that, in that context, are in those first two groups. Many of them had some buy-in, but when you take the third step, you get to this committed lifelong learners and followers, that group gets really, really small. In fact, to give you an example, in Acts, the first chapter, verse 15, we see that after Jesus has resurrected and gone to heaven, ascended to heaven, there are 120 people left. There were thousands and thousands of people who had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, but now there are only 120 that are actually doing what he told them to do. These are the committed, lifelong learners and followers. That's the picture in the New Testament of disciples. Now, what category do you think the largest number of people in the American church fall into? I'm guessing it's just like the first century. It's those first two categories. There are a lot of people in our church culture today, and I talk about the Big C Church all across the nation that have some buy-in, and they're saying things like, yes, I believe in Jesus and who he says he is and what he says he's about. I believe that this is true. And they are content to go on living the Christian life in just that category as a convinced listener. I believe the American church has created a situation, not necessarily good in that context, where discipleship is optional, Going, from the, going to that deeper level, we've made that optional. It's like just, there's, there's no expectation of that. Following Jesus as a disciple has been relegated to those who we probably think of as kind of super Christians or the paid experts, right? Is it possible to be a Christian and have absolutely no progress in or toward discipleship in your life, in the church today? Yeah, it is. It is possible. And I think that's a problem for us. Now, one of the greatest needs the church has today is more men and women and students who believe in Jesus Christ and to be the disciples Scripture teaches us to be. It may be the greatest need in the world altogether. What I want to say to you this morning based on the authority of the bible is i want to be part of a church that is impacting the world with the love of jesus for the glory of god i want to be part of a body of believers that is not just casual or marginally convinced in our approach to jesus but we are all in on fire committed lifelong learners and followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're embracing him and we are making him known in the 405, 09 and beyond, all around the world. Lexington, Kentucky, all around the world. Now, before we get there, I think we need to know kinda what we're looking at. What does all of this mean to be a disciple? So, I mentioned Matthew, the fourth chapter. You've been holding that patiently. I wanna take some time and read The first people picked on Jesus' team. And these would not be the people you would think. Look what he says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus appears on the scene there at the Sea of Galilee. And this is probably not the first time that these four fishermen had encountered Jesus. This may have been the second, maybe even the third time where they interacted with him. Jesus comes to them and he says two words, follow me. It literally means come after me. And in these two words, we begin to unpack what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This morning I want us to look at how do disciples follow Jesus? How exactly does that happen? I mean, if I'm a disciple, I want to know what's expected from Jesus of me to following him. So in the remainder of the time we have today and then next week's message, we're going to talk about how to follow him. What's it look like? Am I, am I doing am I or am I missing the mark on this? Because if we're all lining up in the same way, we're all pulling in the same direction, oaring in the same direction, think how, how much more we could accomplish for the purposes that God has called us here, to make disciples of all nations. So the first facet of this, the first answer to this question, how do disciples follow Jesus? The answer is live the radical abandonment for the glory of God. Live with radical abandonment for the glory of God. What we have, I think, what we've got to realize is that that right here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of this chapter, He starts with being tempted, and then he's resisting temptation. And then we find him giving this this verse 17, the message in verse 17. And then we get to verse 18 where he's picking his team. Here's what verse 17 says. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry. And he's preaching a simple message. Repent. That means turn from the world and follow Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. Now there is some debate in certain areas about that it does it speaks of something different, but the truth is that most Jews were not comfortable with using the term the Hebrew term for God. Because of the the Ten Commandments said. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And so they were afraid if they used the word inappropriately or accidentally, somehow they would be sinning, breaking that commandment. So they just called it the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing as the kingdom of God. And it's repeated over and over again throughout the book of Matthew. It's not a kingdom as in a place where there's a palace and, and big regal walls and all of that. It's a picture of the rule and the reign and the dominion and the authority of God. And where his rule and his reign are acknowledged and submitted to, there you see a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Now where do you get this radical abandonment idea for the glory of God from all of that? Well, what I want you to see is that over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned in the book of Matthew, and it's always accompanied by great cost and sacrifice for God. Let me give you an example. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, verse 44 through 46, there are a couple parables, very short parables, that Jesus gave as he used to talk about how we can inherit the kingdom of heaven and what we would do to be part of that kingdom. Look look what he says in verse forty-four and following. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. The second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. Do you see the picture in these two parables? The kingdom is worth selling everything that you have got in order to get the kingdom of heaven. It's worth living and living life and leaving everything behind. We look at Luke, the ninth chapter, and we find an interesting thing happening there in verse 23 and following. Jesus has this huge group of people who are now following him. They've been there. They've been listening to his teaching. They've been watching him perform incredible miracles. He's even fed them. And now what we find is Jesus saying this to them. Then he said to them them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." Jesus said to the four, come follow me. And now there's a huge following. And he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You may lose your life in the kingdom as you represent the kingdom. Are you getting a glimpse here of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of his, a learner, a lifelong learner and follower of his? If we jump back to Matthew, the fourth chapter, we have this picture here. Think of how all of this is being played out in these four lives. Look at the cost. What Jesus is teaching us here today is that as his disciple, we're going to have to leave some things behind. It's not going to make the trip. Think about what these guys were leaving behind. And this is is kind of the, the maximum example of what the cost might be to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple. The price of radical abandonment starts with they left their comfort. They left all that was familiar to them They were used to being fishermen right there on the Sea of Galilee, which was a big lake. And they they were good at that. And they were familiar with that. And they left it. They, They left it and they followed Jesus. Number two, they left their careers. These men had been professional fishermen. We're not sure how long, but long enough, this was who they were. It was part of them. And you know how it is. In your job, if you've been doing something for a long time, it becomes part of you. People say, hey, you're a plumber, or hey, you're an attorney, or hey, you're a nurse, or you're a doctor. That's who you are, and they walked away from it. Number three, they left their possessions. These guys weren't rich by any stretch, but they weren't weren't poor either. They were probably somewhere in the middle class, and they had a lot to lose when it came to leaving their nets behind. What they're showing us in the modern world today, their actions— is you can't be a disciple of Jesus and love your stuff, your possessions, more than you love Jesus. It won't work. It just won't work. And then number four, they left their position. They left their position. In that day, people would attach themselves to a rabbi in order to promote their position. You would find a great teacher and you would go learn from him for a while so that you could become like him and then you would move on to an even greater teacher. But you would have to ask that teacher if you could follow him. Jesus flipped the script, if you will. He went to these guys and said, hey, come follow me. That was a change. Rabbis didn't do that. And these guys would have been some of the last people that your average rabbi would have chosen. They were fishermen. This was a way, if you got the right rabbi, that you could gain social status. You climbed the ladder, if you will. Sound familiar to us? Jesus says, though, you come follow me. And we're not going to be climbing ladders. We're actually going to be descending ladders. That's how we're going to do it. It's not about position here. It's about abandonment. Abandonment of comfort and career and possessions and position. And then he goes, he goes to a really strong and heavy cost. These guys left their families. James and John, it says they left their father, Zebedee. And we know from other clues in the Gospels that many of the disciples had wives And Jesus didn't call them to leave or abandon their spouses. But he did, there is plenty of evidence that he did have them away from their families for extended periods of time in order to follow him. Anybody know a missionary who moves halfway around the world and they only see their families every two or three years on furlough? Occasional family visit. That's a huge sacrifice. Their devotion to Jesus would supersede even the closest family relationship that there is. And some of you are wondering, if that's on the table, I'm not sure I can do that. Number six, they left their safety. It's not a good thing when your rabbi says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's not a good thing. That's not very encouraging when he says, hey, you will be hated by everyone because of me. I think some of the guys may have been stepping back going, hey, are you, did you hear what he said? I'm, is there a clause we can get out of this thing? Are you sure we should do this? Because then he says, are you, are you, uh, if you are persecuted, if they persecuted me, pardon me, they will persecute you also. And that was not good because they would eventually see Jesus beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified. They saw that. Their safety was on the line. And if they hadn't completely abandoned it, they had made a huge mistake. You see, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, going to the darkest places of our cities and the most dangerous places in the world is not a question of is it safe? Because that's no longer a concern for a disciple of Jesus. And the question is why? Because it is abandonment where we leave behind our our worries about ourselves. Remember what we read at the just a few minutes ago from Luke 9, then he said to all those who were following him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. They knew what it meant to carry a cross. That meant you were, you were going to die. Paul put it simply this. I love his framework on this. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He saw that if they killed him, so be it. He was going to die doing kingdom work. But if he died, he got to go to heaven. Think about that. That was how Paul summed it all up. And Paul was living, he was living on the razor edge of that. Everything in our culture seems to be about promoting self, protecting self, preserving self, taking care of self. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, deny yourself. Talk about flipping the script. Deny yourself. This is a countercultural message in in Matthew, the fourth chapter, in the first century. This is is crazy talk. And yet, it's counterculture. It's a countercultural message even today, maybe even more so today. If you're gonna leave all of these things behind, let me ask you a question. What would happen if one of us. And let's just say for the sake of discussion, it's you. Okay? So everybody gets to participate. It's you. It's not one of our staff. It's not one of our elders. It's, it's you. In this room this morning, and you do exactly what these four men did in Matthew 4. What would happen if you did that? Think about it for a moment. If in, the, in a matter of an instant, you leave behind your entire profession, everything that you kind of, your whole career, that your life has kind of been in, in, encompass has been this career, and you leave it behind. You leave, behind. you leave behind your family for extended periods of time. You're not abandoning them, but for long periods of time, you're not gonna see them, and you leave behind all your possessions, and you let them completely go, and you begin to follow Jesus. And people would start to think, about you, that you had lost your mind. You're crazy. People would think that you, you had gone over the edge. You'd become a religious fanatic, a Jesus freak. Think about it this way. Think about that college student who's praying about making the gospel known in an unreached people group, somewhere in a part of the world where most Americans don't go. And they have this huge concern. It just, it just lays on their heart, and they cry about this, and they, they've struggled with this because their biggest concern isn't how they're going to pay for it or what they're going to do when they get there. Their biggest concern is, how can I tell my Christian parents who don't want me to go? How do I tell them? They want me to continue to get my education and get a nice job and stay here and start a family and establish myself. And I get that. But they say they want what's best for me when in my mind, in my heart, what's best for me is what the Bible says that I should deny myself, take up my Christ cross and follow Jesus. And he's leading me to this place halfway around the world. And they wonder, how do I reconcile all that? Being a disciple of Jesus is a radical abandonment of all of these things. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Monty, have you lost your mind? I don't know what happened to you on your study time, but you came back and you're a little bit crazy. What do you mean abandon all these things? What do you mean by that? Well, let's think about it practically. I'm a pragmatic person, truthfully. I I don't like swings too far one direction. I like staying right in the center. If you meet me on a two-lane highway, I'll be the guy straddling that yellow dotted line down the center. I love that. What does it look like, practically speaking? Jesus may not call us all, Today, to leave all of our possessions this very moment, every single thing we own. He may not call us to leave our jobs this week, this, this profession that you've built much of your life around. He may not call you to say, Hey, my family is going to be in the background of my devotion to Jesus in a way that these disciples did for extended periods of time. But what He's saying and what He's showing us here. Is that all of those things in our lives we should hold on to loosely? And if there's something you're gonna grab onto tightly, that should be Jesus. And we should live for Him that way, holding all those things loosely and holding on to Him tightly. And if that means that we let go of some of these things at one point or another in the course of our lives, we're glad to do it because we're embracing Christ. And we know He's the King of Kings. All of this is his. He's the center of our hearts. And that is radical abandonment for the glory of God. Because when we do that, guess what? He gets recognized. The light is on him. John the Baptist had it right. He said, I must decrease so that he can increase. And that is the idea here. I'm going to let some of this stuff go because it's getting in the way or, or God's calling me to do that. What happens when Jesus is the supreme affection and the central focus of your life? I'll tell you what happens. You love your wife better than you ever did before. I know that's true. You love, ladies, you love your husband like he should have been loved from day one. And you love your kids and your parents and your siblings and your coworkers, and your friends and your neighbors. They all are changed because of the way that you treat them. You love them unconditionally. And it changes the way we lead our families. His kingdom is evident right there in our homes. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, why would I want to do any of that? I've got a sweet thing right now. And the way that you size it up is you say, I may not say this out loud and I would deny it if you knew that I was thinking it. But I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven of all my sins because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. And I could live here on this earth and I could enjoy all the pleasures of this life. And then because I've been saved and forgiven of my sins, I know I'm guaranteed to enjoy the pleasures of eternal life. So why would I want to abandon all those things? I want to say something to you. Praise God that your salvation, my salvation, is not completely dependent on the works that we do because we would be out in the cold. Praise the Lord, our salvation is completely dependent on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you or I could do to earn that salvation. It's free. And God desires every one of us to repent of our sins and start following him just as these four disciples did that day. But the very purpose of my salvation and the purpose of Christianity in general is not just so that I would be saved from my sins. The purpose of your salvation is not just to save you from your sins. We've kind of Americanized a version of the gospel, if you will. We've created a a Christianity that centers around us where everything is made to be on me achieving my forgiveness of sins through Christ. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died just for me. And while I in no way wanna take away from the extremely personal nature of God's mercy and his love and his grace for every single one of us in this room, I do wanna say to you that when Jesus died on the cross, He did not die just for you. Had you been the only person to ever live, he would have died just for you, but that's not been the case. As far as I know, there are somewhere around seven and a half billion people on the planet right now that he died for. He died for those so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. All nations. Jesus died so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, would be proclaimed over the entire earth. He saved us from our sins to make his glory and his grace known through the 40509 and beyond. That is why he saved us. We are not just forgiven. We are part of a purpose to magnify the kingdom of God. We're on his team. He picked you. He picked me. You're going to see in the weeks to come in this series, God was chasing after you. He picked you. And now you're on the team, which means you get to play. You get to participate. We leave behind all of these things to live for one thing, and that is to honor the King of Kings. That's the thing that drives us to live for the king of kings, to draw honor and glory to him. This is a radically different way to look at Christianity. I know it's a high bar and some of you are going, I don't think I can make it. I'm not sure I'm even, I'm even geared for that. Let me ask you this. What if you just prayed and said, Lord, can you help me take some steps to get there? Maybe even you're just a you're just a casual listener this morning. Or maybe you're a convinced listener, but you you know you've kind of said, hey, I can only do so much. You will not see in the New Testament people who are satisfied to receive forgiveness at Jesus' expense and then go on living as a casual acquaintance of Him. You just don't see it. Because it's not there, it's not biblical. So let's you and I not live that way either. I want to encourage you, just pray. Over the course of the next several weeks of this series, just pray, Lord, show me how I can become more of a disciple like Jesus called me to be. And then listen. Spend time in his word. Let him guide you through that. Let him massage you and shape you into the man or woman of God that he calls you to be. And let's live with radical abandonment for the glory of God. And you know what? You'll have fulfillment in your heart like you've never had before. There'll be a satisfaction like you've never had before. And there will be people in heaven someday because of what you did. There's nothing better than that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this talk. Kind of a hard talk, I think, in some respects. And yet, Lord, this has been been a good one. We study about the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And we see what what the disciples paid as they followed you right out of the gate. That's what it means to be fully committed to you. That's what it means to be this lifelong learner and follower of yours. For your glory, we wanna radically abandon all of this. And you're worth it, Lord. You're worth it. Lord, instill in us this responsibility to let the world know about your love for them, regardless of the cost. And God, if there's a person here today who doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day, Lord, that they recognize just how much value you've placed on them, that you came to die, not just for me, not just for others in this room who've walked with you, but for them. I pray God that they could come talk to me today, maybe get together this week, just to find the opportunity to share what it means to be a follower of yours. Lord, help us to be men and women who live that way for you. We pray in Jesus' name.